Have you ever wondered where we came from and where we might be going? Well, this podcast is here to answer those questions, at least in the context of the Game of Thrones living card game. Welcome to Insight and Renown. How's it going, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Season 2 of Insight and Renown. My name is Alex. I'm joined once again by Chris Schoenthal. Say hello, Chris. Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Likewise. And today we are going to be talking about Shadows, uh, which was recently announced as returning to the second edition of this card game, having made a uh, pretty big appearance in the first edition. Uh, for some reason, this has been... Right after, right after they made that announcement, there was a uh, one guy that made the uh, post in the Facebook group about it being notorious. Uh, was was there really that big of a concern about Shadows back in first edition? It I, I know you mentioned that it, it was always around while you were playing, but I don't really remember there being too much too many people complaining about the Shadows mechanic itself. Just uh, perhaps a couple of individual Shadows cards. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. That generally speaking, the complaints were over the power level of specific cards and not the power level of the mechanic as a whole because it's kind of just a, an alternate marshalling. Uh, it does have some surprise factor, of course, and, and advantages and disadvantages that I discussed at length in an article on agot.cards. Uh, but in general, I, I never really heard any complaining like, oh, we should get rid of the Shadows mechanic wholesale. It was usually specific cards that were causing issues. Yes, absolutely. And the article that Chris is referring to there is called In Defense of Shadows. Uh, I highly recommend you guys check it out. Um, but let's get going with talking about some of those specific cards. Uh, Chris, do you want to get us started? Sure. Uh, so just as a, as a quick introduction, this is essentially going to be a greatest hits uh, of, of shadows for each house. Uh, and, and obviously for neutral cards as well, because there were several powerful neutral options uh, for shadows, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be doing the, the bulk of the describing, and then Alex is going to jump in with some of his thoughts on the cards. Uh, so I thought we'd start off with uh, the shadows agenda of the day, which was called City of Shadows, uh, and it said, you may ignore House X only deck building restrictions on any card with the shadows crest. Whenever you bring any card with a House X only restriction that does not match your house card, out of shadows, pay one additional gold. If you do not have any cards in shadows, you cannot claim power for unopposed challenges. Uh, so essentially what this let you do was splash shadows cards because every card that was a non-neutral card that went into shadows said house X only, essentially house Stark only, house Martell only, etc. Uh, thus generally allowing your opponent to limit the options for what you might have in shadows to what what was on the table and also for specific mechanical reasons um the plus one gold that it mentions when you bring out a card of house x only that doesn't match your house is kind of a nod to uh what is referred to as the gold penalty which was that in general you could play cards out of house and then simply pay two more gold to play them instead of the banner system that we have in second edition uh so the City of Shadows agenda essentially let you play Shadows cards of all houses uh, with a slight penalty to the ones that weren't in your house. Now, I always thought this one was weird, because um, 
that card came out right when the Shadows mechanic was introduced, and as an agenda featured around the Shadows mechanic, you would almost expect that to be the assumed way you would play Shadows cards. But, um, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, I think there may have been one or two good decks that used that agenda, but for the most part, if you built the deck around Shadows, you weren't playing that agenda. Is that correct? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's, it was a pretty uncommon agenda to see. There were... You know, it was kind of a fun agenda. Sometimes you'd play it if you didn't didn't really care how you did it at a tournament and you just wanted to get some neat shadow synergy that normally you couldn't do because of the the mechanics of the cards. Um, but overall, yes, it wasn't it certainly wasn't popular. It was never a dominant force in the meta by any means. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, as you mentioned, there's that gold penalty where the default was you could play cards from out of house more expensive. This basically let you do that for a subset of cards but you had to dedicate your entire agenda around it, so it did not really seem... It, it seemed like the opportunity cost was way too high. Yeah. So then moving quickly on to the main plot that supported the Shadows mechanic, and this one was very popular for a specific reason. It was called City of Lies. It was a three gold, six initiative, one claim plot with a city trait and said, when revealed, you may put up to two cards with the Shadows Crest into Shadows from your hand without paying any costs. So, <laughs> essentially, it's a seven gold plot in an environment where a seven gold plot was unheard of. Yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that card. That was just a ridiculous starter, especially when you compare, or especially when you include that uh, initiative value on there as well. Yeah, great initiative. And uh, as I mentioned, it is a city plot, uh, which was part of a cycle of plots where the more plots that had the city trait in your used pile, uh, the greater efficacy a plot later in the game would have so for example there was another plot that said kneel up to x characters where x is the number of city plots in your used pile so you'd start usually with city of lies put two shadows cards in so you have kind of a big gold plot get your board set up and then from there you could start ramping up the city plots to uh to greater effects so with those two out of the way uh one popular one less popular uh, I thought we'd move directly on into the neutral options. Um, the most ubiquitous, in my opinion, uh, Shadows card was Serial Pharrell, and he was a Shadows Zero card, so you'd pay two to put him into Shadows, and then you would not have to pay anything to bring him out of Shadows. He had the Stealth keyword, and he said, Response, after you win a challenge in which Serial Pharrell participated, put him into Shadows. So he was a military monocon that you could put in basically any deck. Uh, you could pay two for him or use City of Lies to put him in Shadows, uh, bring him out at the beginning of any phase because he didn't have that cost like other cards, uh, and then once he participated in the challenge, put him right back so he would dodge resets. Uh, he, would also, he was also heavily involved in a popular Stark deck that used the Epic Battle events which are a whole other ball of wax but essentially each event that you played in the plot phase with the epic battle trait created a new phase called an epic phase after the regular challenge phase and each one of those phases had an opportunity for a shadows action so you could bring Sirio out do a military in that epic phase put him back because you want to challenge with him then go on to the next epic phase bring Sirio out do a military challenge with him etc and the, the popular Stark agenda said that you gained two power for your house every time you won a military challenge. So it was essentially a uh, kind of a rush deck. 
Absolutely, and super powerful. Um, and Serio is actually really indicative of one of the things uh, mechanically that we might want to um, have some concerns for as this is being implemented in the second edition. Because one of the good things about Shadows is even for a card that, unlike Serio, doesn't keep popping in and out of Shadows, even for one that you just put into Shadows and then bring out later on, Shadows represented uh, a way of investing your economy in a character in such a way that that character was not immediately vulnerable to kill effects or reset plots or anything like that. So uh, even if it was just a normal character that would just come out later on, it would be coming out much cheaper, uh, at least in the, uh, the first edition economy. Um, so if you had cards in Shadows, you were already somewhat protected against, say, uh, Valor Margulis. Sure, absolutely. And uh, of course, in second edition, in addition to uh, uh, in addition to protecting your economy in that manner, we do, as you mentioned in your article, have reserve to be concerned about. So in addition to protecting your board a little bit by having a backup, you're also uh, putting that card somewhere where it's not going to be discarded to intrigue claim, it's not going to be discarded to reserve, it's just uh, a small investment to uh, set up something, to, to, to set up a better board position for the future. True. All true. And Again, I, uh, I mentioned that in my article with, with some possible solutions or, or discussions, at least on that topic. So uh, I agree that it is a potential concern and hopefully one that the designers have taken into account as we get those cards in the card pool. Now, I would be remiss to mention Sirio without his uh, loyal companion or counterpart or foil, depending on how you look at it, uh, Varus. Varus was a Shadows 1 card with an Intrigue and Power icon, 3 Strength a lord and ally, and stealth, and he had passive text that said, after Varus comes out of shadows, choose and discard one ally character from play. Uh, it is important that it's passive text because if there are no allies on the board when you use Varus, Varus has to discard himself, uh, which embarrassingly happened to me on more than one occasion. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, if you... If your opponent had Serio uh, sort of going, the Serio engine, if you will, uh, if he was the first player and brought Serio out of Shadows first, Serio was also an ally, so you could then respond by using your Shadows action to bring Varus out and discard their Serio. Uh, so those two, uh, both very powerful neutral cards and kind of uh, played off each other in some interesting ways. Interesting. I don't think I ever came across that particular interaction. Um, it, it's it's weird actually the amount of um, as you say Varus only targeted characters with the ally trait it's it's weird how little in second edition so far we've had th things interacting with traits on such a large scale as we did with Varus there were so many cards in first edition that would uh, get rid of characters of a certain trait be it ally or mercenary or knight in in one case I think in second edition basically the only big things you have to worry about are an event that nobody plays. And Dario Naharis, I guess. Yeah, I did. I, I think those are those are the two main use cases of, of traits, and and in first edition too, there was some uh, trait manipulation, which was interesting, where you could make certain cards into uh, traits, sometimes even absurd traits, such as uh, making a giant character into a raven, for instance, or uh, weird things like that to cause other interactions like that, and. It's not a path that the designers have continued down in second edition, which is good and bad. It was an interesting uh, mechanic and had some fun decks built around it, but it also 
sometimes was a little frustrating to play against when you uh, when when things like Varus or uh, or the Carrion Birds were shuffling in your uh, best characters. Definitely, definitely. Uh, we we might wait to see if they go further down that road, but I think that might be a pretty good topic for a future uh, cast because there were a lot of ridiculous examples for trade manipulation. I like that idea. Uh, another another neutral card, not quite as popular as the first two, but still powerful in a deck that had a heavy Shadows component, was King's Landing. It was a uh, Shadows 2 uh, neutral location with the King's Landing trait and said, after a card comes out of Shadows, stand King's Landing. Any phase, kneel King's Landing to draw a card. Use this ability only if you control more King's Landing locations than an opponent. Sorry, than each opponent. So, essentially, this would create a draw engine for your Shadows deck because you would bring it out. It could react to its own coming out of play uh, to draw a card. And then uh, when another card came out of Shadows in a later phase, such as Sirio in, in a weird phase because he was free, uh, you'd stand it, draw another card. So uh, with King's Landing on the table, you could often uh, hit the draw cap, which we've discussed before. Uh, just by using that one card. And not the first copy of King's Landing that would allow you to hit the draw cap, actually. One of the first <laughs> versions of King's Landing was the one that established the draw cap, so uh, maybe a nice nod by the designers there. Very true. That is that is clever. Uh, another King's Landing location that was pretty ubiquitous in certain decks uh, and, and so popular that it eventually got restricted uh, was the Red Keep. It was a Shadows 1 neutral location, again, with the King's Landing trait, so it helped out that King's Landing synergy, so you had more King's Landing than your opponent. It had no attachments, so you couldn't play Frozen Solid or similar things on it. And it said, if the Red Keep would leave play, it goes into Shadows instead of going into its owner's hand, deck, discard, or dead pile. So essentially, any means of getting rid of it, unless you first played Nightmares or something on it to stop that text, uh, you could not get rid of it by any of those means because it would just go back in shadows and then they could bring it out again later. Uh, and then it had plus three influence on it and that's a, that's an alternate cost that we've talked about previously. Uh, and three is quite a bit of influence. It allowed you to single-handedly play some of the most powerful influence requiring events and effects. And so that was common in Targaryen decks. Uh, it was also common in Martell decks. Those were the two biggest influence using houses. So... You saw that card a lot as sort of a basically an economy card for their alternate costs. Yeah, definitely. And weirdly, they actually had another version of the Red Keep back in the CCG that, again, all it was was an influence generator. I think it was three influence again. But instead of being a Shadows card that just bounced back to Shadows, it was just immune to all of those ways of removing it. So, again, a Red Keep that would always stick around to provide influence, just a, a different way of making it immune to your opponent's shenanigans. Interesting, all right. So those four examples are ones from the uh, initial shadow cycle, and then from there the designers scattered shadows about at, at, at will, essentially, uh, throughout the other sets. There was a cycle near the end of the game that each pack was a callback to another cycle, so there was one pack that had a lot of uh, shadows cards, there was one pack that helped out seasons, agendas, things like that, and so... So that was kind of a nostalgia cycle. Uh, but even outside of those two cycles, Shadows popped up here and there. And uh, one of the places it popped up was in some neutral Kingsguard. 
characters that were very, very powerful. Um, so the first of them, and the one to get restricted, was Sir Preston Greenfield. Uh, he was a, again, a Shadow Zero, kind of like Sirio. Um, he was a knight. He had the military and power icons and was a Kingsguard as well. Uh, no attachments. Any phase, return a Kingsguard or Queensguard character you control to Shadows. It was limit once per round. But if you returned him to Shadows, when he came back out of Shadows, he was considered to be a new copy of Sir Preston Greenfield and thus could put himself back in Shadows again, much like Sirio did. So, so he was eventually restricted because he had more icons than Sirio, uh, could synergize with the other Kingsguard that I will I will get to in a second, uh, but but generally he was practically speaking a more efficient Sirio uh, just without the stealth. Can I also just point out for a second the huge thematic fail in my opinion that they had here? I mean we're talking about a cycle of characters that represent perhaps the most visible and effective characters in Westeros. The, the they go around wearing white cloaks and shiny armor and they're always around the king. And these are the guys that they decided to... They'd be a good way to focus the, the on the Shadows mechanic. <laughs> yeah, that does feel a bit strange, doesn't it? Uh, so the the payoff card, if you will, for the, the Kingsguard Shadows characters was a neutral Sir Jamie Lannister, which in itself is pretty weird because generally speaking, Jamie has been uh, constrained to House Lannister. Uh, but he was a Shadows 2 character with three strength, military, intrigue, and the no attachments and renown keywords. Uh, he was also a Kingsgarden and Knight, just like Preston, and he said, response, after a card comes out of shadows, draw one card. Draw three cards instead if you control three or more Kingsguard characters. Uh, remembering that the draw cap is three in first edition, uh, generally speaking, you wouldn't trigger that second part where you had three or more Kingsguard, but as, as just previously mentioned, Preston Greenfield could essentially come out of Shadows every phase if he wanted to. So he would uh, pop back into Shadows, come out, Jamie would draw a card. Pop back into Shadows, come out, Jamie would draw a card, etc. Uh, yeah, and, and it bears mentioning that uh, even though Preston Greenfield's text by itself doesn't particularly seem all that exciting, the fact that there were so many cards that responded to cards either being in Shadows or coming out of Shadows is why they chose to restrict that guy instead of, say, Jamie Lannister. Yes, absolutely. So then we come to the third part of the sort of Kingsguard package or triumvirate, who is uh, Sir Eris Oakheart, uh, who's, again, normally constrained to House Martell. He was a Shadows 1 character. Uh, again, three strengths, uh, military and intrigue like Jamie, a Kingsguard and a knight with no attachments. And he said... Response, after a card comes out of Shadows, choose and stand a character you control, limit three times per phase. So essentially he would, he could be an anti-Neil card. If you're playing against a Lannister Neil deck and they'd knelt some guys out in marshalling, you could bring Ares or Preston out in the beginning of challenges and stand one of those characters. Uh, or again, he worked well in the, uh, the epic battles phase because... You could bring out a guy, bring out Preston, and then stand a guy. So you had a bigger military to do 
uh, then put Preston back and then do it all again in the next epic phase. Yes, absolutely. And this is another one of those cases where the difference between first edition and second edition uh, is fairly significant because that text, when he comes out of shadows, stand a guy does sound pretty powerful, but you do have to remember, as Chris just said, the shadows mechanic in first edition, you'd only bring a guy out at the start of a phase. So if a guy wasn't knelt going into the challenges phase, you wouldn't really be able to get the most use out of Sir Eris because you could do a challenge and then bring him out, for example. Yes, his text would absolutely be even more powerful in second edition uh, due to the fact that it's an any phase action now. That's a, that's a very good point. And also probably worth mentioning, uh, one of the reasons that Shadows has a better chance of, of avoiding these sorts of issues is because the cost to put a guy into Shadows was, was two, which was already fairly significant in first edition, they had a number of cards that were zero or one cost to bring out of Shadows, which meant you could get a lot of cheap cards that would allow you to enable these responses to cards coming out of Shadows. In 2nd edition, it seems like we're going to avoid that for the most part, because uh, as we've already seen, cards like Sir Jarrus Drinkwater, his cost to bring him out of Shadows is 5, I think. Yes. So uh, we're probably not going to see a lot of situations where you're abusing cheap guys popping in and out of Shadows to trigger reactions. Yes, that is that is the hope. Uh, all right, let's move right along to Martel. Oh, actually. Oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry. Uh, I also just wanted to pop in and mention uh, when you mentioned uh, Jamie Lannister being neutral, uh, that might have actually been a callback as well, because uh, I think it wasn't the first version of Jamie Lannister, but it was in the second ever set in the CCG. They did a cycle of Kingsguard characters, all of which were neutral, including Jamie Lannister. Oh, okay. So okay. it's possible that they were just going for a callback to that. Um not sure if that's exactly what they were going for, but there was precedent for a neutral Jamie. All right, that's good to know. With that, let's move along to Martell, uh, one of the houses that had some real strong, tricky Shadows cards. And we'll start off with a card that we have seen in second edition in a different form, uh, Venomous Blade. It was a Shadow Zero weapon, so again, you could bring it out at the beginning of any phase and said, House Martell only, after Venomous Blade comes out of Shadows, attach it to a character you control, then choose and kill an opponent's character with printed strength two or less. Response, after you lose a challenge, Venomous Blade goes into Shadows. So, uh, the, the one downside of it is you did have to have a character on the board, so it wasn't great after your own reset or after your board's been wiped, because you couldn't... Uh, you couldn't do the then part because you hadn't attested to a character. But other than that, uh, printed two, strength two characters were significantly more common in first edition than they were in second edition since the curve of both gold and strength were much lower. Uh, and so the, the range of characters that Venomous Blade could kill was very wide. Uh, and then further, it instead of uh, the, the non-terminal kind of bounce that we have in the second edition one, it automatically went back into shadows after you lost a challenge on offense or defense. So then it was again ready to kill somebody the very next phase without any further gold investment. Uh, so this was, a, this was a very powerful shadows card that uh, did end up getting restricted. Yeah, and even so, it was often the choice uh, of Martel players to use that as they're restricted. And man, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I hated that goddamn card. Yes. Yeah, it was not uh, not fun to play against. Essentially, the uh, 
in general, in first edition, there wasn't much attachment removal played because attachments were overall such a bad card type because they essentially all had terminal. Uh, so that led to that specific overpowered attachment uh, being hard to get rid of unless you knew you were playing against the Martell deck and often led to turns where you would simply not be able to attack or defend challenges because you they had two Venomous Blades on the board and you wanted to get them off the board. So you'd have to just sit, let them do what they wanted to you, and then play Valor Morghulis the next turn to reset their board, which would then discard the, the Venomous Blades at long last. Yeah, that was often your only option. Along the themes of recursion that Martel had in their Shadows cards, uh, is one that was a, a favorite of mine that was not overpowered, I would say, but uh, a, little, a little more appropriately costed and powered, and that's the Dane Spearman. Uh, he's a non-unique House Dane, House Martell-only character. Uh, Shadows 1 uh, had a military and a power icon, and said, response, after you lose a challenge, put Dane Spearman into Shadows to choose a character. That character loses one of each challenge icon until the end of the phase. Uh, so essentially, in addition to claim, you could uh, put him back in shadows and strip one of their characters. So if you were the second player, which uh, shockingly Martell often liked to be, uh, you would be able to disable one of their big defenders. Or uh, if it happened on the first challenge, you'd be able to uh, be safe from further attacks from one of their biggest characters. So uh, it, was a, it was a card that I, I really enjoyed playing with when it was out. Yeah, absolutely a strong character. I, I, I gotta tell you, the more I see in uh, Martell Icon Manipulation in 2nd Edition, the more worried I get. Uh, it was already pretty strong in 1st Edition when you would regularly have several medium-strength characters on the board. That was sort of an average board in 1st uh, Edition. In 2nd Edition, where we ha so frequently have 3 or 4 really effective characters on the board, all this targeted Icon Manipulation is starting to make me a little bit antsy. Yeah, I could see I could see some real concerns there, especially with uh, especially with cards like Starfall coming out that uh, kind of strip icons on demand and can be uh, played with House of the Red Door. So we'll see if that uh, we'll see if that theme gets overplayed or overpowered uh, going forward, or we'll see if it's just me being a reactionary since I'm one of those guys that just likes to slap big characters down on the board. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I enjoy I enjoy good good beef as well. Uh, the last Martell card I wanted to touch on was an Ariane Martell who also was restricted eventually. Spoiler alert: uh, She was a Shadows One Three Strength Lady House Martell only with an intrigue and a power. And she said, "Response: After Ariane Martell comes out of Shadows, choose and reveal a new plot card." Now, this is a mechanic that, thankfully, we have so far avoided in 2nd edition, which is plot manipulation or, or plot flipping outside of uh, the Reigns of Casimir agenda. But this could enable all sorts of tricks. It could further power up the uh, city cards that we talked about. So, for instance, you could flip City of Lies to open the game on turn 1, put Aryan into Shadows. Turn 2, you could play one of the other city plots and then as you went into challenges in that turn two you could bring out Arion, which would then flip into the one that kneels for each city plot and you'd now have two so you'd get two kneels on their two biggest characters at the beginning of challenges on turn two 
It could also obviously be used to play a reset. So uh, if you didn't like the way the board was looking, you could pull Arion out of shadows while keeping other cards in shadows uh, and immediately flip into Valor Morghulis and wipe the board or, uh, or other such shenanigans. And then Martel had ways of getting cards back from both the discard and dead piles. So uh, the reason she ended up being restricted was because uh, people would run three of her uh, flip through their plots as quickly as they could and uh, and just create a real tough experience for the opponent going back and forth between resets and and the control plots and uh, and and such certainly some opportunities for abuse there um, I have to say I, I actually would kind of like to see something similar come back maybe with a restriction on the trait of the plot that you had to reveal um, there's some interesting things you can do with abilities like that and I, I've definitely I've, I've liked what I've seen of their new abilities of like swapping plots around in the use pile and things like that. But um, it, they'd have to step very carefully if they did want to make something similar to how she worked in First Ed. Sure, I, don't, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, something like that with some very specific restrictions on it. So, uh, we're through the, the first house. Uh, the next house I'd like to touch on is Baratheon. Um, and they were a house that was one of the sort of divided houses where they had cards that liked shadows and then had had cards that disliked shadows. So uh, I'm going to go over a couple of the uh, their favorite shadows cards for, for now, and then later we can touch on some of the uh, anti-shadows cards that they had. Uh, the first I want to mention is one that I mentioned in my article, which is the Queen of Thorns. Uh, obviously, we did not have a uh, Tyrell house, at the time, so uh, the Tyrell characters were enfolded into some combination of Baratheon and Lannister, uh, or sometimes split between the two, uh, but they never split uh, Shadows cards. Uh, so Queen of Thorns was a Baratheon character. She was a Shadows 1 House Tyrell lady, House Baratheon only, and she said, response, after a card comes out of Shadows, the Queen of Thorns claims one power. Limit once per phase. Pretty pretty innocuous in general. Seems like kind of an okay way to gather power. But then you get to the Sisters of Truth. Uh, and Sister of Truth was a different Baratheon Shadows card. Also Shadows 1. Uh, two cost with an intrigue and a power. And said, response, after Sisters of Truth comes out of Shadows, choose a Shadows card in play. Return that card to Shadows. So, if you had Queen of Thorns out, and then brought a Sister of Truth out of Shadows for one gold, the Queen of Thorns could react to gain a power, then Sister of Truth could respond to itself coming out of Shadows to return itself to Shadows, then the next phase you could pay another gold to bring the Sisters of Truth out uh, again, and uh, Queen of Thorns, of course, would claim another power. So, this was a uh, sort of a Mace Hightower of First Edition, uh, not as not quite as ubiquitous as Mason Hightower are in Tyrell, uh, but still every bit as powerful and difficult to break up. <clears throat> the next card I'd like to discuss is another one of that Kingsguard group. Uh, it came out a little later than the uh, neutral Kingsguard we talked about before, uh, and in my opinion didn't see as much play as it deserved. I think it was an incredible card, and uh, the fact that it came out near the end of the game and there was already uh, kind of an entrenched best Knight of Flowers uh, caused people to underrate this card, but I think it's uh, 
very powerful. It was a two cost shadow, so shadows two, three strength, military power, and King's Guard, so it triggered off all the King's Guard things. Rainbow Guard and Knight, House Baratheon only, and Renown. And it said, response, discard a card at random from your hand and bring Knight of Flowers out of shadows to save a unique character from being killed or discarded from play. So essentially it was a, uh, a save on a stick. Uh, and it is also important to note that when you use that response to discard a card at random and bring him out of shadows, that circumvents the two gold that you have to pay to bring him out of shadows. So you'd essentially, instead of paying the two gold, discard a card, and you'd get a save out of him and eventually get a, a, a pretty reasonable body. Yep, absolutely. I, I love that card. And it's also uh, worth remembering that uh, if, for example, you're using that reaction on a Valor Margulis turn, uh, by the time you've used his reaction, Valor has already killed people. So when he comes out, you will have gone from, you would have had zero characters if you hadn't saved anyone. Having used him now, you've got two characters on the board after a Valor, and that's pretty, pretty solid. Absolutely, yeah. Then the last Baratheon card was uh, has an interesting distinction in my mind. Uh, Shadows events did not really see a lot of play. There were Shadows events for every house, uh, but none of them really gained enough. None of them were really strong enough to gain a solid following. Uh, the one exception, however, is the Baratheon event, Fiery Kiss. And Fiery Kiss is a Baratheon-only Shadow Zero event, so you would have to put it into Shadows and bring it out, much like the dash on uh, Beneath the Bridge of Dream, which has been spoiled for 2nd edition. Uh, the only way it could be played was from Shadows. And it said, Response, after Fiery Kiss comes out of Shadows, choose one non-army Baratheon character in your dead pile and put it into play. That character gains Vigilant until the end of the phase, and at the end of the phase, discard the character if it's still in play. So, uh, that did several things. Uh, first, obviously, it gets you back one of your best characters out of the dead pile, puts them right into play for you, so you have a, a strong body for that turn. Secondly, it gives them Vigilant, which was a Baratheon keyword uh, that when a when the Baratheon player won as the attacker, all characters with Vigilant stood. Uh, so if you happen to bring back a renowned character with Fiery Kiss and you were close to winning, you can do multiple challenges with it and just win the game on the spot. Uh, and last, of course, it says at the end of the phase, discard the character, but it's still in play. So it essentially uh, gave it a close call type effect. Uh, allow allowed you to move one of your biggest, beefiest characters from the dead to the discard pile uh, while actually getting to use them for a turn on top of all that. Yeah, I'm, I, that was definitely very strong, especially with uh, cards that would have a reaction when they came into play. I think we mentioned, was it Dale Seaworth on a previous cast? Yes, yes, Dale was one of my favorite cards to Fiery Kiss. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think, what was it, he, he got back, was it a Baratheon card from your discard or something like that? Uh, yes, when he, uh, when he enters play or leaves play, you could choose and return a Baratheon card from your discard pile to your hand. So you got one when he entered play with Fiery Kiss, and then at the end of the phase, he would be discarded, and you'd get another one. So essentially, he was a draw two on a uh, body that actually also had Joust, so he was not the worst at winning challenges on his own. Did you get the second one back? Uh, or was this one of those things where you couldn't react to an end-of-phase situation, one of those weird timing things they eventually added? 
Was there um, something where you wouldn't be allowed to react to things happening as part of you the might end be of the right. turn? You might be right that the end of phase timing might not have worked with him, but still getting getting your best Baratheon card back while still uh, having Dale for the challenge phase is nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm definitely having a hard time remembering any other powerful uh, Shadows events. And it looks like they're uh, they're right on track to continue the um, the tradition of terrible events that go into shadows with beneath the bridge of dream. <laughs> that's uh, that's quite fair. Just looking at this card, you you pay two gold to play it, and then later on you can give up your ability to choose a plot to get the two gold back. What what? Yeah, it's uh, I'm sure someone will figure out some crazy combination with it, but until then, uh, I'm content leaving on the sidelines. Yeah. <laughs> so from there, uh, we will go into House Lannister, another house that really enjoyed having Shadows cards. It had, in my opinion, one of the uh, best Shadows challenge uh, cards in Tyrion Lannister. Uh, you don't think of Tyrion generally as much of a fighter, uh, but his Shadows incarnation absolutely was. He was a Shadows 2 character. Uh, three strength and a tricon. So right there, you know, you've got all three icons. Everything's great. Uh, he was a lord, house Lannister only, and had the stealth keyword. Uh, so very valuable so far. But his response is what really set him apart from other characters. And his response was, after a card comes out of shadows, Tyrion Lannister gets plus two strength and gains your choice of deadly, renown, no attachments, or immune to events until the end of the phase. Essentially, when he came out himself, he was a five-strength stealth with any one of those keywords that you wanted. Um, and then from there, every phase that or every challenge phase that he was out, you could, again, bring another card, uh, perhaps one of the zero-cost cards, uh, out of Shadows, and uh, do it all over again. He'd get his two-strength, he'd, uh, he'd get his keyword, and everything would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Very versatile, very powerful. Um, I kind of understand the justification they had for making Tyrion a Tricon based on what's in the books, but I think they could probably stop giving him that military icon, uh, especially if they're going to give him such versatile abilities as that Shadows version. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, aside from Tyrion, there were a couple other uh, Lannister cards that were pretty powerful in Shadows. One was the uh, Alchemist Guildhall. It was a Shadows 1 location that said, Response, after a card comes out of Shadows, Neil Alchemist Guildhall to choose and kneel a character or location that does not have the Shadows crest. So it itself was Shadows 1, so of course it could once again trigger off of itself coming out of Shadows. Uh, but then every time you brought a card out of Shadows, uh, you could basically have some spot control. Uh, this eventually was so powerful that it got errated to a limited response. Uh, and so uh, that limited its power in combination with one of one specific other Lannister card, the, the Castling of the Rock, which also was a limited response to Neil, a character. Uh, so you couldn't use those both in combination, but they still often found their way into decks together because generally speaking, if you didn't have one, you had the other. And so the Lannister Shadows decks... Uh, with with three of these uh, were a real pain to face because often they would get two or three kneels between the guild hall and their events uh, or other character effects and and you would be kind of stuck 
Yeah, definitely. Even the uh, the fact that that was a relatively steep cost for a location, um, that really didn't cut its efficacy in any way. Yeah, and the fact that it, it itself could kneel locations uh, was not necessarily a common effect. So it was it was really good to have that versatility of being able to use it as location control too. If your opponent had something that uh, that it really wanted to do with its locations, definitely. And then the last uh, Lannister Shadows card is everybody's favorite uh, defrocked maester, Quyburn. Uh, he was also a Shadows 1 uh, card. You can tell that that was a, a pretty common cost for Shadows cards, as most of the ones I've mentioned have, have been Shadows 1. Uh, he was 2 strength, uh, Maester, House Lannister only, and Deadly. Uh, he had an Intrigue and a Power Icon, and his response was, after Quyburn comes out of Shadows, choose a non-army character in an opponent's dead pile, put that character into play under your control. If that character is still in play at the end of the phase, return it to its owner's dead pile. So he was often uh, used just kind of as a closer, uh, where you would get your opponent's biggest renowned character, and suddenly you had this extra giant body on your side, uh, in addition to Quyburn. Yeah, I mean, pretty straightforward, very thematic, uh, very fun. Uh, we're going to skip over House Greyjoy, as all of their Shadows cards were miserable. Uh, there, there, there were a few of them, but none of them really are are worthy of discussion. To be quite honest, uh, there's one later on the list in the uh, anti shadows department, but uh, Greyjoy was not a favorite shadows house and, and rarely ran that city of shadows agenda. Uh, if anything, it had a Sirio or a Varys, and that's about it. Uh, of course, right at the end of the game, it may have had the the Kingsguard combo. Uh, but in terms of its own cards with the actual Greyjoy sigil, they are, they are few and far between and not very powerful. Yeah, I mean, a, a bunch of a bunch of big brawny guys with axes coming at you screaming on a boat that doesn't really scream hiding in the shadows to me, so <laughs> that's a certain fair. amount of sense. That, that is absolutely fair. Uh, so with that, we'll move right along to Targaryen, uh, and they did have several good Shadows cards. Uh, they had two that were uh, essentially burn cards, uh, if you will, kind of like Jacaris. Um, and one was the King's Landing Assassin. He was a, a uh, Shadows 2, so he was pretty pricey as Shadow cards go. But he had a, uh, an Intrigue and a Power, and uh, sorry, a Military and an Intrigue. Uh, and the response after King's Landing Assassin comes out of Shadows, choose a character with no attachments. Till the end of the phase, that character gets minus two and killed of zero. In first edition, minus two and killed of zero was by far the most common uh, burn number, if you will. Uh, so, so you'd find uh, you'd find that on uh, Flame Kissed, which was uh, a burn attachment of theirs. You'd find it on this fellow, and a few other cards also had it. So he he would often uh, come out, make somebody minus two, and you kind of knew at that point, at the beginning of the challenges phase, that that character was probably marked for death because uh, they would, even if they were a three or four strength character, you'd know they wouldn't have targeted that character with a minus two if they weren't going to later on hit it with something to uh, to cause it to, to reach that zero terminal. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so if you did have any strength raising effects, that would be the time to use them. But I mean, those were pretty few and far between. Yeah, they were, they were pretty uncommon. Uh, and then another example of this is another attachment. Uh, it was a Shadows 1 attachment, 
Dragon Skull. Uh, and it says attached character gets minus two and kill strength zero, just static text. And then response after Dragon Skull comes out of shadows, attach it to an opponent's character or discard it from play. Uh, so another another burn attachment, uh, and you n- note that those two are are not a combination because the King's Landing Assassin said that it can't target characters with attachments, and Dragon Skull obviously is an attachment. Uh, so those didn't go together, uh, but but you'd usually see one or the other depending on the other burn that was being used by by the opponent. True, true. It's another one of those cards where I I, I question the theme. Um... So it's it's a card in shadows, so they didn't see it coming. But then it's just it's it's a skull that's burning them. It's a so giant they like, dragon skull, yeah. I guess they like opened a closet and it fell off a shelf and crushed them or something. <laughs> I, that must be the theme, right? I'm sure that's what they were going for. Yeah, there, there, there's subtext there. <laughs> uh, then later in the uh, later in the game, when they were releasing some of those powerful callback effects, we got uh, a young Griff who was a three-strength Tricon with Stealth, Shadows 1, uh, and the Lord trait. And his text was, response after Young Griff comes out of Shadows. Stand any number of characters you control, and then you may immediately bring out another card out of Shadows by paying the rest of its gold cost. So he was, uh, he was a real double whammy for Lannister decks because, uh, as we mentioned, they like to, to do a lot of spot kneel. And this guy could completely undo all the work that they'd just done because he stood all of your characters. Uh, and then they got to still bring out another Shadows card if they wanted to. So uh, that that really, uh, that, was a, that was a tough one-two punch for, for a Neil deck to, uh, to handle. Absolutely, yeah. And the combination of, uh, of, of the cost to strength ratio and the fact that he's got uh, all three icons and stealth meant that he wasn't a dead card even if you weren't using his ability to stand any characters. Yeah, his body was was not shabby either, uh, and I think that was a theme in first edition of of Targaryens is they had some some pretty strong bodies with really good icons, uh, such as our next card, Sir Jorah Mormont, also in that sort of uh, King's Guard Queen's Guard mold, uh, also a Shadows one, also a Tricon, a Queen's Guard and a Knight, no attachments except weapon, and he had the static text: If Sir Jorah Mormont is discarded from your hand. Put him into shadows instead and draw a card. Uh, so he was essentially the Targaryen version of the first edition Darkstar, uh, who would come into play when he was discarded from hand. Uh, so he would protect your hand and then get you a card back if he was discarded, uh, and then you wouldn't have to pay the two gold to put him into shadows. Man, I'd love to see that guy reprinted in second edition. Now that they got all those uh, discard a card from hand effects, they didn't really have that in first edition as much. Yeah, we're getting a character kind of like that in Missandei. True. Um, but I don't know, I don't recall if that is uh, only to Intrigue Claim or if she has a similar effect where you can do it to pay a cost. It, you can definitely do it to pay a cost. Uh, I've seen people thinking the dream scenario of getting a Kotho in your opening hand and two copies of Missandei. So you just discard <laughs> her twice. She's in play with a dupe and he's in play as well. <laughs> dupe Missandei uh, and, a, and a Kotho, that's imp- impressive. But yeah, it'd be super cool if they also came up with a few other cards that when they were discarded from your hand, they went into shadows. So not only did you keep a resource, your opponent wouldn't necessarily know which card had been brought into shadows that way, but they'd have a little bit more information. Yeah, I like that. Sorry, just uh, just theory crafting here a bit. We've got no indication that anything like that is coming down the pipe, but uh, I'd like to see something along those lines. Sure, absolutely. 
And then we come to House Stark. Uh, House Stark had more cards that disliked Shadows than, than cards that liked it, but they also had one of the most infamous and powerful Shadows cards in the game. Uh, on, on a previous podcast of mine, Summer is Coming, we ranked uh, the top five characters in uh, what was at the time first edition uh, near the end of the game. And uh, she took either second or first, I can't remember. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of Mira Reed, uh, champ card by uh, Andrea Gualdoni. Hope I don't butcher that pronunciation. But she was a Shadows 1, uh, 2 strength, military and intrigue character, uh, Lady House Reed, and Stealth. Uh, response, after a Stark character leaves play, put Mira Reed into Shadows, and any phase, bring Mira Reed out of Shadows and into play by paying the rest of her gold cost. Then choose one non-plot card, two instead if it's winter, and treat its printed text box as if it were blank until the end of the phase. Uh, Absolutely brutal. <laughs> yes. Very, very much so. So, a couple of unique things about her. Her action as in any phase meant that uh, she was unique in the Shadows world at the time that she could be done essentially in the action framework, which we will now see on all Shadows cards. Uh, but at the time was was special to her, and she would just come out and nightmares one of your cards or two of your cards if, if it was winter, which with Stark it often was. Uh, and then, of course, she had that response after a Stark character leaves play, put her back into Shadows. So uh, leaving play, obviously that's military claim, that's march to the wall, that's any number of different things uh, that would that would put her back into shadows, sometimes even in the same phase. So you could see somebody bring her out, blank two cards, uh, do a military claim, uh, have a military claim fulfilled against them, uh, put her back into shadows, then bring her out, blank two more cards. So that's effectively four for a challenge phase. So, so essentially your best four challenge cards would have no gain text till the end of the turn. Fantastic. And what's even better, we know for a fact that this card is going to be coming back because it's a champ card. True. Hopefully they've uh, they've uh, toned her down a bit, but uh, we shall see. Yeah, it's uh, her ability to uh, pop back into Shadows is even better now in 2nd edition, since uh, Stark has that dedicated ability, or rather that dedicated theme of sacrificing characters. So it's really going to come down to whether or not they keep her blanking ability for coming out of Shadows, or if they completely redesign that part of her, uh, the same way they redesigned uh, Greg's Flea Bottom. Yeah, and I, I look forward and dread the uh, the day she's spoiled. So that's all of the actual Shadows cards. That's kind of a, a greatest hits. Um, there are a few cards I'd like to touch on that are friends of Shadows cards, if you will, and then uh, a couple at the end that are foes of Shadows cards that were a sort of famous or infamous for disliking Shadows. Uh, so the, the first card that is not a Shadows card itself, but has an affinity for Shadows cards, was a Targaryen location called the Dragon Pit. Uh, it's a three-cost location with the King's Landing trait, House Targaryen only. Uh, if you have at least one card in Shadows, any character controlled by opponents who do not have more cards in Shadows than you get minus one strength. So uh, essentially... You could play this card, put a bunch of cards in shadows, and then all of their cards were already at minus one, and then all of your minus two effects would probably kill them because three was three was a 
very common strength point in uh, for for top level characters. You know, Robert Baratheon, the Red Viper, they all had you know three strength. So so the Dragon Pit was a big deal, and it was a bigger deal when you could play it with House of Dreams and just start with it on the table, and then you'd play City of Lies as your first plot, of course. Put two cards into shadows, and everybody was immediately in danger on your opponent's side of the board. Absolutely. And here's where I want to pop in with one of the things I hope most dearly they do not continue in second edition. And I'm not sure if I'm not sure if you're on the same page as me on this one. I absolutely hated every card in first edition that was designed around competing over who had more shadows cards. Because shadows was not a ubiquitous thing. As you mentioned, Greyjoy barely had anything, and there were plenty of decks that didn't necessarily care about shadows. So Dragon Pit's design rather than being a back and forth with who can get the most Shadows cards out, was often just a, I have one card in Shadows, you do not, therefore all of your characters are handicapped. Sure, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. I think that uh, it's, it's definitely, I agree with the sentiment. Uh, I would say, based on the sort of variety of axes that decks already compete on, that I would be somewhat surprised if they, there weren't something like this, uh, but, but I do... I, I don't have a problem with saying it would be better if cards that disguised themselves as a race for shadows but were really one-sided effects because your opponent didn't have to play shadows uh, if those didn't really exist. Yeah, fair enough. Um, it's it's something that I never really I never really saw a good interaction based around counting the number of cards that your opponent had in shadows. Um, there are some that I think you're probably going to mention coming up that uh, they get their effect if your opponent has zero cards in Shadows, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. But anything that kind of compared the two never really struck me as good design. Sure. Uh, and then kind of the, uh, the inverse of the Dragon Pit was a Lannister location called Tunnels of the Red Keep. Uh, it was, a, again, a three-cost King's Landing location, and it said your characters get plus one strength for each card that you have in Shadows. So it wasn't part of the, uh, the race necessarily. Uh, but... By the end of the game, again, especially with uh, House of Dreams decks, um, you would be able to play Tunnels of the Red Keep as you're, as you're starting your House of Dreams, uh, and then every character in your deck would just start getting bigger and bigger, uh, including some characters uh, that we had in first edition called Refugees that had zero cost. And so the deck would run three of the Lannister Refugee, three of the Neutral Refugee, and then uh, a, some number of other tiny characters, uh, but they would not be tiny for long because you'd put cards in shadows and make them huge. Uh, and then uh, along the same lines, there was a little finger uh, who enjoyed having cards in shadows. He, he was pretty common. He was a dual house Stark and Lannister character with the Lord and ally traits. And he started out at five cost and was three strength, uh, intrigue and power, and stealth with no condition attachments uh, for what good that did. Uh, and he says he doesn't kneel to attack, so that's a, a pretty powerful effect, of course. But then you reduce the cost to play him by each card in Shadows, so sometimes he would cost one or even zero in a dedicated Shadows deck, uh, and then he wouldn't be kneeling to attack and would be stealthing, and he was, uh, he was quite a powerful card throughout the, throughout the time that he was legal. Yeah, very efficient, and uh, even if you don't have that many Shadows cards in your deck, even if you're not all that uh, dedicated, uh, he did say all cards in Shadows, not necessarily the ones that you had, 
So he could still get a substantial discount even if you weren't uh, dedicated to that theme. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then the last uh, Shadows Affinite card I would like to mention uh, is called the Kingdom of Shadows. Uh, it's a one gold kingdom location. And so instead of being a neutral card, it had all six houses, uh, which was relevant for things uh, like I mentioned, the Castellan of the Rock earlier. He knelt a card when you played a Lannister location, it would count as a Lannister location. Uh, it could be reduced by all the house reducers, things like that. So instead of being neutral, it was just everybody. Uh, and it had the passive text, after a player wins an Intrigue Challenge, that player kneels all copies of Kingdom of Shadows to choose and stand a card with the Shadow's Crest, plus one gold. Uh, so the implications of that, as, a, as static text are, that if you were playing against another Shadows deck and you both had these out, whoever won the first challenge essentially got a free stand for that turn because you'd kneel both yours and your opponent's copies of Kingdom of Shadows to stand one of the shadow ca Shadows cards that you'd done the challenge with. And so that was, a, that was a card that was very common to see in any deck that had even, even a modicum of Shadows because it was a reasonably con card. It was not limited. Um, and then had an intrigue effect. So if your deck had, had a good amount of intrigue, it was probably fine. Um, and then was able to stand your biggest guy, often Tyrion Lannister. Yeah, and I have to say, I really like that design compared to something like the Dragon Pit. Because, as you say, if you are both playing that uh, Kingdom of Shadows card and you're both trying to trigger it, it does sort of become a race to see who can dedicate it the most resources to actually uh, trigger that reaction. But, on the other hand, if you're not both playing Shadows, if only one person is, you still are on a fairly even playing field to try to uh, defend that, that challenge so that they are not able to trigger it. So even if you're not necessarily uh, playing the, the same game as them, you are on an even playing field on uh, trying to prevent them from getting that bonus. Unlike something with the Dragon Pit, where it's just, if they have Shadow cards, it's happening. So I mentioned earlier a Greyjoy card, and the one Greyjoy card we'll be mentioning in this episode is the Distinguished Boson. <clears throat> he is a one-cost, four-strength, military and power icon Ironborn. Uh, so those stats obviously uh, make him pretty powerful. You know, one cost is, is very little gold even now uh, and was, was certainly less gold then for a four-strength character. But uh, for each card in Shadows, he gets minus two strength. Uh, so sometimes he could uh, simply be a zero strength and be uh, useless and good for claim only. Uh, but when he wasn't useless, he was uh, an absolute dominating factor on the board. Yeah, especially effective early game where A, there's a good chance they haven't found their Shadows cards yet, and B, being one cost, he was excellent for setup. Yes, he was He was very good to set up, regardless of whether there were Shadows cards on the other side or not. Uh, and then the other, the other two cards that I'd like to mention in the disliking Shadows category uh, are both Baratheon cards, and those would be Robert Baratheon, uh, who we've discussed before on this podcast in our combo episode. Uh, you'll remember that he uh, was able to stand uh, any number of times, eventually limited to three per phase when they put the phase limit on him, but only if there was not a card in Shadows. So uh, Brett Zyler's world's winning deck was built around giving him a bunch of Maester Chains, standing him to do the Neil effects on the Maester Chains multiple times, uh, and just kind of going off, but only when there are no cards in Shadows. 
meaning that he also had to run the King's Lock plot, which is a 3-9-1 that discards all cards in Shadows at the end of the marshalling phase. So going into challenges, you were guaranteed not to have anything in, in Shadows. The second Baratheon card along those veins was the uh, actually the other Knight of Flowers that I mentioned earlier. Um, he was he was very popular in, in almost every Baratheon deck, uh, simply due to his efficiency. He was a three cost, three strength, military, and power. Uh, Lord Knight House Tyrell with renown, and he said, if there are no cards in shadows, Knight of Flowers does not kneel to attack or defend. Uh, so when he was on the board and there was no shadows, he he absolutely crushed the battlefield because he would be able to do two challenges on offense, be in two challenges on defense, stay up for dominance, and uh, unless you had some specific kneel effect, there wasn't a lot you could do to him. Yeah, pretty much. Um, definitely more powerful than I'd like to see uh, in second edition, since in second edition we seem to have more challenges being uh, won by a just a, a character or two. Whereas in first edition, it was uh, a bit more common to throw three or four characters into a challenge, um, therefore making the uh, emphasis on this one guy not standing or kneeling, while powerful, uh, not absolutely dominating. Yes, does that make I sense? Agree. Yes. Uh, so those are all the the cards that uh, I had. I have one last special guest that I would like to call a dishonorable mention uh, in the realm of shadows cards. And for those that uh, played any amount of first edition, they might be able to guess what I'm referring to. And that card is Jack and Hagar. Uh, now there was a very powerful version of Jack and Hagar at the very beginning of the game that was all houses and had all the house specific keywords as well as the generic keywords. And uh, in fact had to be, was one of two cards that eventually had to be banned uh, until he was re-released with, with fixed text much later in the game. Uh, but this poor Jacken uh, is not that Jacken. He is a Shadows 2 neutral character with zero strength, no icons, and the ally trait. His text is, any phase, bring Jacken Hagar out of Shadows by paying the rest of his cost to choose one non-army character in an opponent's dead pile that was killed this phase and attach it to Jacken Hagar as a duplicate. Jacken Hagar gains the printed text, base strength, icons, traits and crests of that card if that duplicate leaves play return jack and hagar to shadows ah uh, yes i remember this one uh so you might be thinking to yourself a that is thematically really cool he basically pretends to be somebody else and b that has to, the potential to be really powerful he can steal some really good effects but uh what got in the way of that chris well uh let's read over again the list of things that jack and hagar gains from this character that he's copied he gains the printed text base strength, icons, traits, and crests. You will note that the one thing missing from that list is that Jack and Hagar gains the card title of the card that he is copying. Uh, so, while he may gain the text, strength, icons, traits, and crest, uh, he will not be the character that you copied. So, if that character has any text that you would like to use, uh, so, for instance, if he was the only Shadows card in play and he copied that Robert Baratheon that we just talked about, you're like, sweet, I get to stand him a bunch of times and he's got renown and he's got three strength and two icons. But no, because Robert Baratheon's text says, any phase, stand Robert Baratheon, not 
any phase stand Jack and Hagar, and Jack and Hagar is not Robert Baratheon, so his text is essentially useless. Yeah, kind of a downer when you realize that. Um, although, if you are running your own copy of Robert Baratheon, he can stand that copy for you? Uh, no, all abilities are self-referential, so, so that wouldn't help either. Ah, but it stops being self-referential because it's no longer referencing the same card because the, the card title does not match the text. Interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that would work, but I like your style. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, regardless, uh, this Jackin was, was much maligned by the community when they realized that uh, thematically he was an A+, and uh, in actual value and practice, he was an F-. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean... Even if you think to yourself, okay, well, just find a card that has a good ability without referencing its own title. Look through some of even the second edition cards. Most of them that have a even decent ability will reference its own title. Like, uh, it, it, very few of them will say, this character doesn't yield to attack. They'll say, Sir Jamie Lannister doesn't yield to attack in a military challenge, or something along those lines. Uh, most good abilities reference the card title, and that, that just made Jaken basically worthless. Sad but true. Uh, and so that uh, dishonorable mention there brings an end to our discussion of Shadows. Hopefully you've all enjoyed it. Absolutely, I did. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the four on that, Chris, uh, since I wasn't really playing too much competitively at the, the time Shadows was in its heyday. So uh, I, had a few, uh, uh, I had a few strong opinions on them towards the end of the game, but uh, your insight is very much appreciated. Happy to help. So, before we move on to our Crack a Pack series, I just want to uh, take a moment for some bookkeeping here and remind people who uh, haven't necessarily been on the Facebook group recently that we have recently launched the Insight and Renown Draft series. The same source that I've been pulling these packs for for the Crack a Pack series uh, has left me with a large amount of sealed boosters, and I am sponsoring events uh, across the world for people who are interested in running them of uh, CCG Drafts. So if you are interested in running a draft event at a big tournament that's coming up, uh, have you or your uh, tournament organizer send us an email to insightandrenown at gmail.com. Uh, we'll hook you up with some, uh, some boosters as, at, uh, as low a price as we can, uh, pretty much at cost, and uh, we'll get an event at that tournament for you. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I'm announcing for the first time that as of right now, we also have an Insight and Renown promo card that will be included as prize support for any Insight and Renown draft series event that is run in the future. So, uh, as I say, if you are interested, send us an email or uh, find me on the Facebook group and send me a message through there. We'd love to get some more events up and running. Excellent. I can't wait to get my promo cards in the mail. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So with that, we are moving on to Crack a Pack. So, today we are switching tacks with Crack a Pack. Uh, we are moving on from the uh, War of the Five Kings set, and we are now doing a pack from the Iron Throne edition. Uh, this was a little bit earlier in the game, so it's not, there's uh, not quite the same amount of power creep, but uh, we'll see what we can find here. I do love the sound of a booster being opened. This one's being particularly difficult for some reason. There we go. All right, so... First off, we've got a House Stark event called Guilty! Exclamation uh, mark. This was uh, House Stark only. In the Dominance phase, you would kneel three influence or a noble character to choose and kill a non-Stark character. 
So yeah, quite a lot of direct kill events out of Stark. Uh, we haven't seen quite as much in second edition, but um, this is one of those cards that uh, if you were running an influence deck that used that uh, red keep that we mentioned earlier, that red keep would single-handedly pay for this and immediately kill any non-Stark character. Yep, and that was a card that uh, that continued on to uh, first edition and was reprinted there, although it didn't have a lot of success there either. No. All right. Next, we have a Martell character. This is the Dornish Alchemist. It's a two-cost, two-strength maester with an intrigue icon. Uh, any phase, kneel Dornish Alchemist to draw a card. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty damn effective. I like it. Yeah, for some reason I don't recall that seeing a lot of play, but uh, surely it must have. Maybe I just didn't play against that much of Martell back then. <laughs> I pity you. They were so much fun. <laughs> okay, next we have... Oh, this is basically seen a direct reprint in 2nd edition. This was the Scouting Vessel. It was a two-cost warship for Greyjoy. It says, in challenges, kneel Scouting Vessel to choose a defending character. For the duration of that challenge, that character does not count its strength. Yeah. So it's Raiding Longship, right? That's what it's called uh, in second edition? It is Raiding Longship, although Raiding Longship is uh, significantly uh, worse because you have to be the first player and they cannot have attachments. So yes. uh, it has multiple additional restrictions. But also potentially much more powerful because its potential targets are so much stronger. Um, with in, in first edition of the CCG, you're probably getting a two or three strength character out of the challenge. Um, I'm very glad that we have those restrictions in 2nd edition because you're more frequently getting a 5, 6, or 7 strength character out of the challenge. So It's also uh, interesting that uh, they re reprinted this first in 1st edition, I'm pretty sure, and then again in 2nd in edition. So uh, someone really likes Krajo uh, is going first. <laughs> All right, moving on. We've got the Brightwater Lancers, a 3-cost Brathian character, 3 strength, military and power icons. It's an army, it's House Florent. Uh, no attachments and renown. And it's got a reaction after an opponent takes power from your house, kneel Brightwater Lancers to have it claim one power. Interesting. Seems, uh, it could be useful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's got that sort of protection from your opponent taking power from you, but by kneeling it, you're also making sure that you're not getting use of its renown, which is odd. Um, you pretty much only ever use that text if your opponent was taking power from you and you thought you couldn't win a challenge with them that turn which basically means you're screwed anyway. That is fair. Anyway, moving right along. Next we've got a two-cost neutral character, the Feuding Clanswoman. It's a one-strength character with a military icon and stealth, the Clansman trait, and plus one initiative. That's pretty, pretty, solid. Uh, I mean, pretty straightforward, and I think she saw a reprint in the Lannister box in first edition. Yeah, I believe that is correct. Um, Cheap stealth is something that uh, we haven't really come across in 2nd edition that much. There's been one or two unique characters that have it, but apart from that, stealth has been pretty hard to come by. True. Alrighty, next we've got the Seafaring Mercenary. A lot of characters in this pack. Uh, this is a two-cost character. Uh, it is House Greyjoy and House Lannister, one of those dual house cards that uh, we've mentioned. It's a two-strength character with an Intrigue and Power Icon, and the Courier trait, which is interesting. Uh, it lowers the gold penalty if you play Lannister or Greyjoy cards by one. So uh, part of a cycle of cards where they tried to encourage uh, mixing decks, which was not as popular in 1st edition. Um, in 2nd edition, we lost with those banner cards, of course. Um, in 1st edition, you could always play 
cards out of two houses, but that two-cost gold penalty was pretty harsh. Uh, so I guess this is trying to offset that a little bit, but uh, it's not very effective since you have to draw and play it first, and it's not that imposing a body by itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that uh, I know that I play such a card now, but it's it could be uh, it could be interesting. Okay, next we've got our this is our first event of the pack. Ooh, uh, no, actually, second nope, guilty we, is an event. Second, second guilty, yes. Uh, Distinct Mastery, which I'm pretty sure was reprinted in the first edition. Uh, any phase, choose and stand a noble, learned, holy, or war character. These were the uh, crests that we've mentioned that were basically the, the glorified traits. Yes, uh, although it doesn't stand Shadow's Crests, ironically enough, the one the one crest we're talking about today. Uh. Yes. <laughs> uh, of course, this does predate the Shadow's mechanic, but um, yeah. Um, I just thought it was weird that they had that Shadow's Crest anyway, since they could have just referred to cards with a Shadow's Cost. Sure. That's yeah, that was a bit strange. Uh, but yeah, Distinct Mastery was a was a very good card in its day. Uh, Ryan Jones ran it to good effect in his uh, Melee Worlds winning and Joust 8th place getting? 6th place getting? Uh, Greyjoy Holy Deck. Um, blowing Matthew Lay out on camera a couple times with it. Matt was playing, <laughs> Matt was playing a, uh, a Lannister Neal deck as he was wont to do in first edition and... Uh, Ryan had two distinct masteries for his two Neil cards, and, and Matt Lay was not happy. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice straight counter for that way. That's nice. Okay, so moving on to the uncommons now. We've got the Lord's Battle Standard, another dual house card. This was an attachment for Martell and Stark with the Boon trait, one of my favorite traits. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there was a... Uh, I, I, seemed... there's, I believe... Is it Strong Belwas? I don't remember if it's the second edition one or the first edition one, but one of them is No Attachments Except Boon, so... Yeah, I like that. I, I seem to recall when they launched the Boon trait back in the CCG, they, they, they basically announced it by saying, there's all these negative traits, like ally or mercenary. Let's come up with a trait that's only positive. What word can we use for that? Let's go with Boon. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it strictly makes sense, but uh, not exactly a common word. It, it sort of harkens back to the use of uh, Moribund, which, while being perfectly accurate for what it was, was such an odd and underused word that, uh, I don't know, I feel like there's a, an English major on staff at FFG. <laughs> That's very possible. In any event, uh, this attachment says, after Lord's Battle Standard comes into play, draw a card, attached character gains a war crest. So, very boring. Yeah, not interesting and uh, not super useful either. It, it's uh, It's a tough ask for... A specific. You said it was a Martell card, right? Uh, Martell and Stark. Okay, so two two houses that uh, already had a decent amount of Warcrest stuff. Getting a crest that had no inherent benefit on its own, I I can't see that card as being especially powerful. Yeah, it'd be better in second edition since you get it back when someone died and you can play it again and draw a card. But you wouldn't even really care about its actual text, just the, the ability to get it back. Next, we've got Hand of the King. This is another attachment. It is a neutral attachment, two cost. It's a title. After Hand of the King comes into play, choose and discard an attachment from play. I like it already. And it has the reaction after a small council event is played. Attached character claims one power. Okay, I like that. It's got some utility on both ends. You get a you get an attachment off of it, and then you uh, then you can potentially start racking up power with it if you play some specific events. I could see playing that. Mm -hmm. And uh, small council is a, a little bit 
underexplored in second edition right now. So something like this would be kind of neat. Uh, maybe even like a cycle based on the, the different positions in the small council. Ooh, I like it. And next, we have a four-cost Martell location called Mountain Pass, which is non-unique with the Dorn trait. It says, after a challenge resolves, discard from play each character that attacked or defended alone. All right. That's, uh, whew, that's quite a thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard counter to some Tyrell decks these days. <laughs> very true, very true. I mean, even at the time, they did have uh, the Joust keyword, which uh, basically meant while this character is attacking alone, the opponent can only declare one defender maximum. So yeah, there's, there's some utility there. It would be nice against the Viper combo. Yes, absolutely. But oh man, that's so expensive in first edition. Four cost? Yeah, that's that's quite a hefty price to pay for that. Definitely. And last, ooh, this is an interesting one. This is the rare of the pack. This is a plot. It's called Bounty of the Realm. Two gold, four initiative, one claim. It has the kingdom trait. And when revealed, if there are one or fewer kingdom cards in your use pile, discard your hand, then put the top five cards of your deck into your hand. Ooh, I like that plot. That's fun. Yes, absolutely. And that was there was a very similar plot that eventually ended up on the restricted list in second edition, wasn't there? There it was. was. A, it had like a two claim. It was very negotiations at the Great Sept. It was a three two two. Uh, and so it had that two claim, which is pretty big. It was a city plot, but it did have the restrictions that you couldn't have other city plots in your use pile, so it was usually played outside of that city cycle uh, that we talked about earlier. Uh, but yes, it was very powerful because of the two claim and uh, and because of the cycling. Uh, it did have also have the fixed text based on this one that you had to discard a hand of at least one card to be able to draw, and it was also double-sided, so both players got to do it. Yes, a uh, very important evolution of the text from the CCG into 1st edition there. Do you think we might see something similar to that in 2nd edition? It's it's very powerful. I'd like to. I, I like that effect a lot. It allows you to kind of get through your get through your deck, and if you're sort of holding a hand of limited locations or your draw didn't go your way, you can try and claw back in the game. Very true. On the other hand, though, it does support combo decks. So, hmm. True... True enough. <laughs> anyway, that will bring us to the end here. Uh, Chris, any final words for the audience? Uh, not really. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that uh, between my article and this episode, you are all excited for... that you are all as excited for the return of Shadows as I am. And uh, hope to see you all out on the battlefield. Yeah, and absolutely. Even with the reservations that I've expressed over the course of this cast, I am very much excited for the Return of Shadows. There's just so many interesting and, importantly, so many cool interactions you can have with that mechanic that uh, unless they really screw the pooch, it's going to be a, a lot of fun when that when that hits the table. All right, so thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, once again, if you have any questions, comments, or anything along those lines, uh, send us an email to insightandrenown at gmail.com or leave a comment on uh, Card Game TV or the Facebook group. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, until next time, everybody, take care. <laughs>